Hi and welcome to the activist class. We've been <laughs> we've been talking. Shit. Hi, no. <laughs> Hi, and it's I think the highest is the one that's freaking out. Okay, so what's up? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the activist class. My name is Myra. I'm here with Chrissy. Hi. Speck. Yo. Day. Yeah. Honest Phone. Sorry. And Trying Arisa. to check if our pizza's here. Hello. That's right. The you're pizza swiping semester. on Instagram. I wasn't swiping on Instagram. If you're like Aretha, you're fucking tired of talking about the election. So, we're going to stop talking about the election now. You're welcome. <laughs> we started this thing a little over a month and a half ago. Um, we kind of hit the ground running. I don't think any of us has produced a podcast before. Nope. Um, and yeah, so it's been a learning experience and we're super stoked that people are listening and like engaging and sharing and all that good stuff. Um, but there's definitely like things that we want to make better and also just like feedback that we've gotten from the community about ways to make the show better. Uh, and a lot of that feedback is, uh, is often the same feedback week after week. <laughs> um, Who the fuck are you? Yeah, exactly. Also, Why is the audio so bad? There is some <laughs> frequent feedback that we get. Um, I would say the most um, <laughs> obvious one is that the audio is sounds very DIY, which it is DIY. We're talking to you guys on some $20 karaoke microphones in the living room. Yeah, give us money. And uh, <laughs> It's pretty much um, a toaster. So another piece of feedback that we get a lot is who are we why are we doing this where do we come from in terms of you know realms of community organizing or issue areas um what animals are you allergic to what is your zodiac sign in your hogwarts house your hogwarts house mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so uh we're here to answer all of your burning questions about why you've been listening to us for six episodes Myra, are you from Seattle? No, I'm from Bronzeville, Texas. Bronzeville. Texas is huge. Where is that in relation to the cities the rest of us know? Yeah. <sighs> well, you know Bronzeville now because it's next to Matamoros, which is on the news a lot. That's where all the baby cages are. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Shit. It got grim again. But yeah, no, I'm from Bronzeville where Grim's all that's okay. happening. Grim's okay. It's that's okay. Wait, so all the stuff we're seeing on the news about like throwing kids in cages that's yeah, happening that's in my hometown what are the like overall demographics of like where you grew up 96 percent mexican-american so yeah i didn't really hung out with white people until i moved here same with me actually growing up in really hawaii I, I met i had my first real white friend after moving to seattle straight up yeah i was, I was spoiled in that way i think yeah, I was really spoiled, too, and, like, how far away I was from whiteness until I moved to Houston, which already is ma minority-majority, so... Most diverse city most in the country. Most diverse city. Houston. I fucking love Houston. I will bite off anyone's head that says Austin is better than Houston because Austin is fucking white, and Houston is not. It's hella brown. Yeah, what brought you from the most diverse city in the country to arguably... Yep. At least metropolitan, one of the whitest. Because I did not know how white it was here. I fucking only knew about Seattle for music. And I wanted to get away from my family at the at the time. And I wanted something new. And um, after four years, five years of architecture um, and wanting to do art and wanting to be to a place that w didn't feel... I wanted a liberal place that would accept me, truly. And uh, I came here thinking that my crazy ideas weren't so crazy. And fuck, I was so wrong. Like? My crazy environmentalist ideas, my crazy social justice ideas, my crazy... When did those start? Um, late college. I didn't vote until I was 24. Was there like a moment that like spurred a lot of that or was it like gradual? 
for it you? was gradual and then sudden so i'm from an immigrant town so yeah like i was aware of a lot of things right but at the same time um i wasn't so critical of, i didn't realize how su- oppressed we were until i learned more about it in college one thing no one talks about is that when you come from an immigrant family that is mostly like came from another country and you're like the first roots there is that when you go to college and and they send you to they really want you to go to college because that's the way that's the american dream right so you go to college you learn all this shit and then you don't relate with your family anymore because now you're in two different worlds so i went i came to seattle thinking i would be understood more and then i realized that I'm still in between because the people that understand you aren't doing the work to change how fucked up America is, but then you can't like talk to your family about that stuff too because yeah, they're not going to want to talk to me about Marx. Seattle's a very educated city where I think we take for granted the type of accessibility people from here have when it comes to um even simple things like knowing your rights and like what's progressive and i just know that like you mentioned myra that i think every time you get more educated especially as parents with you know my parents are immigrants too and every time you get more educated you start to get a little bit more um uh misaligned with family i think back home to the point where you're seeing like well-intentioned white progressive people canceling your parents. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, then, which is very different from like I want to make it clear though it's very different from what I think is the lament of a lot of educated white people complaining about going home to Thanksgiving for a week and like having hard conversations oh my at the god. dinner table. Oh my god. That you know what I mean? Me. Like I, before we get too far into this conversation, like that kills there's a difference me every there. day. But uh, the other thing too is the past 10 years I have had to do heavy re-education mm-hmm. because when I so my boyfriend grew up here and when we compare high school educations to each other, it's fucking depressing. Oh yeah, for fucking His high sure. school was better than probably my whole high school combined, and I pretty much had to catch up the first two years of college because I, there's so much that was left out of my education. So actually, Texas education radicalized me in how oppressive and one-sided and defunded it is, and. I, in high school, I went to a Catholic high school because I remember I was talking to someone from like Houston and South Texas, like also had like similar trajectory to me. And they were just like, it's kind of fucked up how in Texas, the only way to get better education by comparison, not even like compared to the public schools here, mind you, but you go to one and then it's all religious. So then you get another one side of things because Texas, it just it infuriates me when people here don't realize how fucking good they have it and then they complain about it and just for people who don't know like other than architecture you also do a lot of uh, other type of illustration yeah i do i do cartooning now illustration i do a lot of um just random arts um and organizing what kind of organizing do you do most mostly like educational so i try to i mostly talk like about right to the city stuff i've done like a few i mostly plug into other things so like i was at the shell no protests um anyone anytime someone like wants to do like something in relation to either homelessness housing um right to the city i find a way to involve myself yeah it's kind of like your main passion mm-hmm. but it all stems from my personal experience of where you can afford to live ties to your fate essentially right like it ties to your schooling it ties to whether or not you'll be thrown into jail or whether or not you'll find a good job if the air you breathe if it's clean like yep texas like pretty much all of texas where there's minorities that's where 
all the pollution is like down the coast like border towns up to houston but not the good side of houston where the rich people live it's where all the poor people live so like that's what made me an environmentalist is noticing those discrepancies and i thought seattle would know better but it doesn't well the the story that you share about like moving to seattle because of this progressive dream of like being a city that is on the right side of most issues if not all if you're a progressive person and coming here and kind of getting hit with the rude awakening of you know and there are a lot of benefits to being in seattle you know especially Mm -hmm. like working in homeless youth shelters i remember meeting a lot of youth who escaped to seattle because of a lot of um issues in their hometown around like lgbtq like Mm -hmm. um bipoc issues things like that and like it is a at least on the surface level a sanctuary i don't know if you've watched walking dead but it's like kind of like terminus you know it's kind of like i need to watch it that's why i said it's we should realize how good that we have it we do we but we should be honest in who is receiving that opportunity and we're not we keep saying oh equal 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 but the facts are we keep pushing people of color out mm-hmm. right so be honest about it we have it good yeah. but for whom that's really cool i think i think it's dope that we have some nerds on the console i mean on the podcast <laughs> the activist council yeah, i'm a huge nerd <laughs> uh, i think we're all a little nerdy i mean that's how i one of the first things i noticed about spec when i started following him on twitter was that he was like really into um comic books and superheroes mm-hmm. and Wait, is cool this the stuff. comic cool, book couch cool stuff yeah I think is this so. the comic book it's couch? a comic book couch yeah. i mean we like comic shit too i don't believe fuckers. you we First well, well our comics were more like crayon sinchan oh cute avatar the last airbender okay, okay. dragon ball yeah. z dragon hell z. yeah hell we yeah. have dragon yeah. tails yeah but nothing like compared to that like myra speck and chrissy like they did a lot of i mean when i followed spec like i just said for the first time i was like oh this guy's into like really dope stuff and cares about real issues spec there's a lot of people who know you as a musician who video editor known you as a video guy who trolls right-wing constituents in seattle super dad do the lord's work (laughs) know you as a dad vlogger Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. knows you as a barista mm-hmm. an angry barista angry barista mm-hmm. bitter bitter barista uh-uh. bitter bitter barista. Barista. angry baristas though yes shout out to ariel um but what how would you would you are all those like very compartmentalized things in your life or no not anymore i'm just like a content creator pretty much like influencer mm. yeah influencer to the stars i don't i mean i don't see my i don't know i feel like uh I bring a very like different skill set than everybody else in the podcast. Like I have no experience organizing or like I don't consider what I do activism. Um, but I just like to make stuff. Uh, we definitely made all of, of our videos <laughs> <laughs> when we needed shit in the movement. So yeah. I mean, yeah, for sure. True. But like I heard Gabriel Teodros put it a really good way that like artists have like a very important part to play in the movement and like mm-hmm. documenting and like shaping the narrative um and i've kind of like learned especially in the last few years as i've become like more of a professional in all of these ways like there's a lot of content being created from the other side um that is like very well funded and um we don't need that funding to be able to make better content than that and to be able to like shape our own narrative and to be able to like just push the agendas basically that we want to do in creative ways that like make the grow the tent so to speak um we do that we do need that funding for some jobs though but yeah give us some money like we don't like our success is not contingent their success is contingent on that money because they need to hire people like me to make their stuff dope right but like we can also just make that dope shit like for ourselves it's true like but that's kind of like how i see my role in this i'm not like an activist or an organizer but i am just like a documentarian and like content creator and storyteller producer to the stars yeah but here's the thing though it's like you're very online you're very 
front facing. Mm-hmm. Your your avatar is a cartoon, but it's of you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's speculation. Mm-hmm. People know your full name online, mm-hmm. and that has to come with a toll on your family. And I and I mm-hmm. I'm specifically talking about. Dude, your house got busted down by the CIA. You know what I mean? Like, you're online mm-hmm. all the time. You're being harassed by right-wing groups. Mm-hmm. Like, when... And you took a break a couple days, which is about nine years in Twitter world. Right. Pretty much. It, it really is. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I don't know about you, but there, there... For me, there's definitely times where I'm like, maybe I should, like, really just get off the grid. And I don't even have a, like, I don't have kids or anything, you know? How do you balance that? For a lot of years, I found myself, like, in very safe, like, I'm the most, like, privileged person. Like, I, like, hit all the fucking marks, right? So, like, there's nothing the internet can do to me, and, like, that's not, like, a fucking challenge or anything, but, like... Don't come for spec, yeah, I'll kill you. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, and, me like, too. And, and so, like, my wife definitely is, like, hey, like... I'm not invincible, so like, and neither are kids, and so like, that makes sense. But like, I feel, I feel like, I need to do something with this, and so like, I can't, like, I, I wouldn't like take myself out of that situation, really, if that makes sense. I don't know. What's been your biggest lesson working with communities of color as a cishet white dude? I mean, I think it's just to like always stay skeptical of whether or not you need to be there in the first place. Um, I I just like try not to take up a lot of space and like try not I don't know. I feel like if there's a particular way that my skill set can help, like there are like passive ways that I can offer that um and like make that available and like be willing to do labor to like make that happen. Um but mostly just like ask yourself if you really need to be there. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna like, say all the time. Like yeah. every like every five minutes or so just it's, check in and be like it sounds exhausting the enthusiastic yes it always goes back to that right yeah yeah totally mm-hmm. is that your advice to other white folks who want to be in solidarity or what would yeah. that be like if you could make little fortune cookies for them what would they say i mean probably just that like do you need to be here and like why <laughs> and like why do you why do you want to be in solidarity like is it performative and if it is like who are you performing that for um I don't know. Just like be uncomfortable, like stay uncomfortable, be willing to take feedback and like, I don't know, understand that you have something to like offer, but that's what it is. Like it's an offer. It's not like this is not something you should be leading and it's not something that you should like be pushing on other people. Sounds like you found your role and it's exactly where you're passionate in your work. So it's good. Yeah, I got real lucky. (laughs) It's beautiful. Our next person is the true evergreen of the activist class. <laughs> she literally went to evergreen. <laughs> That's what that means. I did. She was Christina Shimizu. Hi. We have two people technically with Seattle roots, and that's Aretha and Christina. And Christina is someone who's always lived in Seattle. No, I haven't. That's true. You've lived in many other places. No, I've li- I grew up in Edmonds. So you grew up in Shoreline? No, I grew up in Edmonds. Oh. Ooh. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I feel very comfortable talking about that experience. I think it's relevant. Which is different from Jay Park, because he's not as comfortable talking about his Edmonds experience. Dude, Edmonds <laughs> radicalized <Jay> Park. me. <laughs> that's yeah, the question. let's talk about that. It politicized me. 30, 40 minutes north of Seattle. Um, that's where you're born and raised. And it's on the Puget Sound. Is it it's like on the a water. Suburb- there's a ferry. Suburbia? Oh, beautiful. There's a ferry dock. What did you do for Kingston. fun in the burbs? Um, well, all of my friends had cars in high school. And so we would smoke weed and drive around. And ghost ride the whip. Yeah. We would have routes. We'd take the routes, you know. Ooh, okay. And then okay. we'd also. What is routes? The smoking route. Oh, and you guys didn't have the routes. I had the routes. <laughs> <laughs> I have a complicated relationship with Edmonds. I grew up in Edmonds, and I went to a private Christian school in the North End called Kings, and I wasn't taught um, evolution in school. 
And I also had chapel every Friday. And I went to school with a bunch of really rich kids. And I was one of three other Asian kids in my grade. And I was the only biracial kid in my grade. I think there was one uh, student who was black until the fifth grade when there was two. And um, I was actually thinking about like, I've pro- I've, I am in my 30s and I've had a lot of therapy and a lot of time to process what my upbringing means to me. And I think like going to a Christian school and being raised religious was really foundational for me. It was, it was something that um, did a lot of good and was also something that was harmful. And I remember like these thermometers in our classrooms in elementary school where we were raising money for missions trips Mm -hmm. to build houses in Mexico and do other missionary type shit, colonial charity work. And um, that I think made me realize at a young age that people around the world had much less than what I had. But I also kind of remember thinking like, oh, I wish my parents could give more. Like, why aren't my parents writing checks to, like, build the houses? And it was a competition in my classroom. Like, the the um, the piety of the religion was really built around, like, classism as well as white supremacy. And so I experienced a lot of, like, self-loathing and shame growing up in Edmonds that I had to unpack later in my life and so a lot of my like a lot of what radicalized me I think was having identity angst and like needing to like go through the process of like identity formation from like wanting to assimilate and like push away from my roots which I grew to become very ashamed of to um, realizing that healing and liberation looked like reclaiming those roots and like forgiving myself for how mean I was to my dad Mm -hmm. you know and like how mean I was to myself and also like how messy I was with my community and like finding you know POC community and kind of like being half white and like biracial going like going through the process of kind of decolonizing my identity and my myself was messy and strenuous on like those who like were very compassionate and loving towards me in that process so then how did you end up in seattle popper um i so i did go to evergreen hell yeah you did (laughs) (laughs) and um while i was in evergreen i i studied political economy (laughs) and that was that was a whole nother thing right like i think finally my education gave me a set of tools and language to understand institutional and structural inequality. And like, it gave me everything that I was looking for that I felt angst around at Edmonds, you know? But I was also reading books and philosophy and political science that was all written by white men, you know? Mm -hmm. Like David Harvey, for instance. And when I was in high school, I like read Noam Chomsky, you know, her hegemony or survival, and like, like, Henri Lefebvre, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, am I saying that right? It's close. Yeah, so, um, basically, like, I, I was at Evergreen with a bunch of white dudes (laughs) who were pretty much, like, socialist alternative bros, and then, um, feeling kind of, like, closer to what I was looking for, but still very much, um, in a, in a silo and like hadn't yet connected with my own um, trauma, I think, and like hadn't connected with my own identity. Mm -hmm. And so after I graduated, I did a bit of traveling, but then I moved back to Seattle and I, um, I did AmeriCorps and I actually really have to give credit to this (laughs) program. It was like, I wasn't like, um, a, a city year person or anything but like in my in my AmeriCorps program we it was through solid ground and like we had to do anti-racism work it was like part of that process so we did um really intentional like we did i've like done 
people's institute for survival and beyond like yes. two or three times and like um and then like we did a lot of like race-based caucusing and connecting with like our personal stories and unpacking like how we all have internalized racism and not just institutional and structural racism but the real personal deep shit and so I think in a lot of ways like that was the first time that I didn't come at understanding the world around me from a really like theoretical headspace that was detached from my own personal accountability I was able to come at it with my heart and with an understanding of like the messages that I grew up with in my family and from my mom and my dad and their parents and um yeah, I came back for AmeriCorps, of all fucking things, was at Solid Ground, uh, an anti-poverty organization that tries to do anti-racism work, but with brilliant people who kept trying and failing and trying and failing. Not the people of color. The people of color were brilliant. And the institution itself just kept trying and failing and trying and failing, but mm -hmm. learned so much through the trying and so much through the failing. Something that I really admire about you is the way in which you talk about both like philanthropy work, um, but just about how how money affects movement work. And now knowing your evergreen background and like this political econ lens, um, could you talk a little bit about like how, did that inform it? How does it inform it? Like you know, like all of the things that you've lived through and all of that like work that you've done. Because the way you talk about it, it, it makes it make sense. Like, for the first time, philanthropy has made sense to me. Like, becoming friends with you, um, I know what it is now, like, and how it works. And, you know, like, both the critique of it and also the ways in which it does do good work, I guess. Um, <laughs> I talked in a circle in my head. No, it's cool. I So I ended up in fundraising of all places, um, because the program that I applied to be the program coordinator for and I was really excited to do direct service got defunded by the state. Mm -hmm. And so um, instead of leaving Solid Ground, my first mentor there hired me um, to do an annual giving fundraising position and said that she would teach me how to do it because I had some political campaign work and like um, some political fundraising experience at the time. and also grew up in Edmonds around a bunch of fucking rich people and could code switch and kind of navigate. And so she was like, you'll be good at this. And I was like, I'm really wanting to understand how nonprofits fit within this larger public and private structure and like what is going on at the top, what those tables look like, what the conversations look like around decision making and how um, things get funded, right? Mm -hmm. So I was like, I guess I'll do this weird ass job and so I, I started doing it and I was fascinated in learning, you know, how um, wealthy people stay wealthy through philanthropy because it gives them major tax breaks. They're also able to like stay in control of what gets, what money gets allocated where. And a lot of like the energy that's, spent in organizations um, is so performative to like pleasing funders as opposed to like doing important work in communities that s a lot gets taken away actually from like communities being able to like do good work and to innovate because it's so metric driven and it's so driven by like meeting the expectations of funders instead of being able to like really innovate and take risks or as Amazon would say like fail fast like the nonprofit sector doesn't have is starved from the ability to innovate in the same way the private sector is um, and in addition to that there's just like little things every day that cause harm to people in that type of work. You know, like poverty porn, for instance, and like reinforcing the savior um, like mentality that some like wealthy donors will have that like they know what's right for the community or that um, they are giving to help some like 
poor brown kid who's like homeless and that by doing that they can feel less guilty about how they made their money to begin with or who they are or their lives right as opposed to just reframing that narrative and saying you don't get a gold star you're not a savior like there there's something like genuinely um inequitable historically inequitable about how you've been able to amass wealth Mm -hmm. and like the conversation needs to be less about generational poverty and why families are poor and switched to talk about generational wealth and why families are rich that's it yeah that's that's what i was trying to get at (laughs) genius exactly so Dashik. Yes. Okay, so you English deflect, ordered bitch. a pizza earlier and you used a fake name to order a pizza. David. Okay, I wasn't going to spill all it's the David. It's my Jamba Juice. I call it my Jamba Juice name. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's my name when they're like, name for your order because I know they're going to fucking yell it out. And no, I don't trust Jamba Juice workers if you were wondering if, if they're going to butcher my name or not. So I say David or Harry. I went for, for a long time because I like Harry Potter. Uh, white gummy extra large for David. <laughs> what is yeah. the white gummy? Secret menu. Benches. <laughs> okay, but the point of that was that you said that you worked at Pagliacci's and you rage quit. And rage I quit. Context That's how I got that radicalized. Story. That's my fifth rave radicalization. Okay. It's like cells second to the last final Tell form us in Dragon Ball Z. Bring us in. I need yeah. the story. So we're going to have Pagliacci's part time delivering pizza while working on Nikita Oliver's campaign. Who that? Because I had to make money. Mm-hmm. You know, this is an expensive-ass city. Mm-hmm. And Nikita... The People's Party didn't have any money. Nikita's <laughs> campaign paid equitably, but not enough, yeah. not to their fault, to survive in this city. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about growing up in Hawaii? <laughs> wow. Growing up in Hawaii? Yeah, because, man, it's a soft episode. Get soft. He's not going to get soft. Get Look at soft, him. motherfucker. <laughs> what do you mean? You've got your Korean joke shield up. Mm. Korean joke shield? Yeah, you're like deflect. <laughs> it's like a Yu-Gi-Oh card. I'm not deflect. I grew up in Hawaii. My parents were immigrants. My dad is black and Korean and my mom's Korean. You ask, how did they grow up in Korea if your dad's black and Korean? He was a war baby. We grew up with his Korean mom. He was born right after during the end of the korean war dad was a 19 year old black soldier from atlanta mom was a korean woman living near the military base they met had a thing made love in the tall grass in the tall grass Wait, really in the tall grass i'm just hoping so it was tall grass i'm hoping it was tall well, grass. Not short not grass. Like and not like <laughs> <laughs> crab grass yeah it's like long enough where pokemon can hide <laughs> Um, yeah, my dad was born, grandma decided to keep him, went through a lot of racism. America is not the only racist country that suffers from white supremacy. And he immigrated to America in his late twenties, ironically, to try and escape racism and came to America for that because he grew up going to the community center where Ollie was fighting boxing matches and thought, man, if that man can make it, maybe I can make it. And so he kind of stuck that in his mind, bounced around different states for a while, and then he ended up in Hawaii because it was probably at least culturally accepting of somebody with a pretty big, ambiguous story like his. Everybody has pretty ambiguous stories in Hawaii, how you ended up there mixed with different things my mom more of a traditional korean immigrant but grew up pretty poor um from like grew up on a farm dad died real young so she became she was the oldest sibling in korean culture oldest siblings usually take on like the more parental role in general especially growing up from a teenager without a father um she kind of assumed that role so there's like a lot of like survival instinct in my parents um and those of us who have immigrant parents, and I think four of us do here out of five. Um, super majority. Super majority. Yep, yep. Used to be the council. Yeah. Um, those of us who grew up with immigrant parents, which is four of us here, know that 
what they are fluent in is survival and part of that is hoping for their kids to never have to survive which also means us being radicalized and continuing the fight that they had no choice but to embark in is not always the preferred um, ideology our parents would want for us and i'll speak for myself i think my mom would rather have me not go to protest and write really radical things because why and i learned this why would you put attention to yourself why would you put attention to yourself and also like why would you put yourself in that situation more by choice when i literally tried my best for you to not be in that type of exactly yeah Yeah. exactly and i think i grew up pretty resentful of my parents because of like their apoliticalness even though like we grew up in section 8 housing government funded housing pretty poor not a lot of access to resources and so you think like what the like you would know the fight is necessary but like you know part of it being culturally asian part of it being like i'm not i had to suffer through that so you don't have to deal with that like just go to school yeah like Myra mentioned, just like get an education, become a doctor, lawyer, and that's a stereotype we make jokes about it now, but really like in their frame of mind, like just make money. And I always like joke with my friends. It's like, yeah, my parents wanted me to become a lawyer, a doctor. They're Korean, but it's also if I got another job that made just as much money, they'd be cool with it. You know what I mean? Like that's just like what they thought made the money in America. Actually, I'm really curious what everyone's like top career that your parents told you like what's like their ideal you know like what's like you made it right you fucking made it to the top to me it was engineer oh really yeah mine was uh i didn't didn't get like doctor lawyer or anything i was like engineer you're gonna laugh at this but mine was uh probably politician same (laughs) wow same oh my god my family made like presidential posters for me when i was like in elementary school my parents didn't go that far they didn't have that high hopes (laughs) (laughs) i mean it was a picture of me at the beach covered in dirt being like president basu at the beach yeah my mom just knew i love like arguing debating they said lawyer a lot they're like oh you'd be so so good at arguing but then she's also like oh you like you're always like talking to someone and you're so like social Mm -hmm. as i got older so she's like oh you should like stay out of trouble so you can like become the mayor at that time um big island one of the islands elected their first korean american mayor harry kim oh wow and so i think that kind of like inspired a lot of these if one korean can do it we all can do it you know so pioneer is pioneers of industries for communities are definitely a big deal because you definitely open up the possibility of what somebody can do Mm -hmm. Uh, oh yeah 100 percent agree and and i'd see it all the time too right like my parents would not be interested in anything like remote about the olympics or like random shit like that but whenever there'd be like a mexican or mexican-american up there like they'd be like oh we won the taekwondo i'm like what the fuck taekwondo we got gold in taekwondo Mm -hmm. yeah we fucking did so like i just like yeah it's it's so i didn't grow up religious like chrissy did but i i found a church i started going to through a friend invite in high school and that's kind of where i got radicalized too like i kind of saw i started seeing like um the difference between charity and justice Mm. during that time and being in the church and knowing that i was one of the few kids that came from like not the wealthiest background i mean there are other kids too in the church like that but i know myself i didn't and i remember I would ask like my youth pastor like hey like here's a thought like instead of going once a month to downtown to do soup kitchens why don't we try to get two homeless people a job (laughs) and i just like at that time i didn't realize what i was processing but i was just like trying to figure out like how do you help people yeah like i don't think they want to be homeless yeah Yeah. and like we spend a shit ton of money like doing these soup kitchens and like i just remember like walking up to somebody during one of these events and i asked him like hey like do you want some soup and then this individual was like no thanks and i remember thinking like what 
in my head my naive arrogant head i was like dude you're homeless like why are you rejecting my food so i was like are you sure like you're not hungry he's like no man i'm way too hungry to eat and i remember like i was like damn like what kind of hunger is that you know and i remember thinking like i was like okay cool like can i pray for you then because that's what you did you know you give them food just so you got a gateway to pray so you can save them from hell and so i remember like i prayed for it i was like i asked him to pray he was like he's like he said no nah, i'm good and i was like what not even a free prayer and then he was like he was like yeah i mean i know you're just gonna say like jesus loves me but like does he really love me because if there was a jesus that loved me like why would i still be homeless and i remember kind of thinking like damn what are we doing as a church during that time youth group to like find an end to this problem Mm -hmm. and really like show that at that time at least jesus or god really did care about them and again at that time i didn't know i was wrestling between concepts of charity and concepts of justice Mm -hmm. but i think that's what started getting my brain turning of like there's a facade that often comes out of well-intentioned people who are doing things because they know it's the morally ethically right thing to do versus like investing real resources into finding solutions to a problem i mean you saw the difference there right and it's the difference is that charity continues the same power structures whereas justice distributes that power yeah or topples it on its head definitely But I do also want to mention, I'm like, I haven't been to church in years. Mm. I moved to Seattle, went to seminary for a year. It's another podcast in another country in another month. It's not this one. Um, But one of the things that annoys me about Seattle is this like, like anti, like this hyper secularism of like elitism, you know, Mm -hmm. of like, if you are somewhat religious, you're you are less than in terms of intellect which Mm -hmm. means x y and z and and not realizing that a lot of liberation movements in the past have been based around foundations of religion um so yeah i mean white church is really different than black it's true church Mm -hmm. very true very true i did work at a white church once and we sang the beatles during christmas service fucking blew my mind dude wonder wall it blew my fucking mind we i mean there's some Beatles music that's like you can like tie the lyrics into some like spiritualism but we also did hey jude (laughs) but we also sang hey jude we couldn't even change it to like hey jesus anyway um i got radicalized in that way of seeing the stark difference between charity and justice and what the church was super willing to do do like uh one day soup kitchens like quick fixes maybe open up a shelter here and there and it was a pretty clear there are a lot of clear parallels to what i currently now critique the city of doing mm-hmm. and neoliberals mm-hmm. um the church a whole ver- other episode right yeah. well the church very much is similar when it comes to ideology as the liberal progressive movement here in seattle and our willingness to build do really quick temporary bandages on a large socio-economical racial problem but not willing to do permanent solutions like build affordable housing invest in public education and black and brown neighborhoods um tax the rich so a freelance i write do political work sometimes and i and i work at cut which is where i make or help make some viral video content about basically social experiments around types of relationships and i try to help my friends go very viral that's like a secret agenda and aretha's been in a couple of videos with her brother and on some blind dates Mm -hmm. i'm still single blind dates aretha went on a blind date on cut (laughs) i'm still single yeah well you're single because you're working all the time that's not true you're in the political world. Do, would you even want to date a political person? Yeah. I would be down. You don't feel like that's like shitting where you eat as people would say boomers? Mm. <laughs> boomers. I feel like... <laughs> it doesn't sound like I'm in the mafia or some shit, but like, 
You need someone who like understands the life. Ah, uh, you're a Capricorn. You just want a power couple. That's so true. <laughs> She's not just so a Capricorn. True. You're like a triple cap, right? So Aretha, activist from the age of 14. Shut the fuck up. Wait, is that true? People, no. I, when people talk about Aretha in the city, they're always like, yeah, Aretha, when she's like a little young teenager standing up on the council stand, I'm like, I'm pretty sure she was like an adult. I was 18. Oh. Does that count? Pretty yeah. young. Yeah, that's yeah. young. I started organizing when I was 18. That's but so everyone funny. thinks I'm 12, so I might as well be five but when you, I started. But you were pre, like, where was social media at when you were 18? Oh, yeah. Was Twitter, Twitter wasn't what Twitter is right now. Uh, no, it was because, you know, Black Lives Matter is the movement that. What like, year were you 18? Yeah, Sorry. That's the thing. She was 18 was six 20, years ago. It was 2014. Oh, okay. Well, there. Ferguson was 2014. Yeah. Exactly. So, right. It was like right around the time Twitter hashtag Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. started. Yeah. Totally. Oh, man. You. Yeah, you fucking got all the experience. Oh, yeah. came into yeah. age, right? Yeah. When hashtag okay. activism was really mm-hmm. becoming a thing. I mean, like, we got catalyzed through Twitter. We used Facebook heavily to, like, do all of our um like protests and stuff like that we had instagram but i was a myspace kid you had a top eight hell yeah (laughs) how often you changed it bro that was like a very contentious part of my teen life i do want to myspace i did text my friend one saying hey i noticed i'm not on your top eight anymore did i do something wrong no it's real that was so real you were sensitive i sent that text that was more for live journal kids so yeah are you still on facebook aretha i am still on facebook i don't use it like actively i only use it for like very big events very big announcements and like most 90 percent of it is events you're waiting for that relationship status change post this one day (laughs) that has at least that's gonna get you at least 300 it's just gonna be like my mom liking it and unliking it and liking it again just like really? finally uh okay so you came t- you became an adult a legal adult 18 when ferguson was happening mm-hmm. 2014 mm-hmm. big year for activism mm-hmm. and what so you, your first uh organizing group was the seattle chapter of black lives matter no so at that time like seattle blm was we didn't have an actual chapter. It was my group, which was Women of Color for Systemic Change and Outside Agitators, which were the like, original OG like BLM groups. Um, and so our group, Walk FSC, shout out to the OGs. Um, it was myself, Harmony, Jasmine, and Zem. Three of those people I went to high school with. One of them I met at a Black Friday protest cheetahs no we i definitely tried <laughs> to make us our name was going to be the three black panthers and the bengal tiger but ah, i got voted down good. very heavily <laughs> and that's everyone definitely was like, an but wa- women of color for systemic change was still long as fuck yeah but everyone was out here saying walk fsc like it was should have went with cheetahs yeah yo we was out here we were seattle mag all of the things oh you got a seattle mag award shit get the fuck out of here palumbo <laughs> oh, we got the original political activism <laughs> so and then so you you started doing women of color for systemic change mm-hmm. which one of the main issues was centered around uh it was around like police accountability youth jail youth jail um and just like youth work in general i mean the funny thing was like we had just graduated from Garfield. Yeah. And so like our first our first protest started at Garfield and everyone thought that we were still at Garfield mm-hmm. and we were like, No, no, we are in college now. You the Bothell, right? Mm-hmm. Which is arguably one of the more Shout out B Town universities and from what I heard. Oh fuck yeah. Bothell is I a- mean second to Evergreen, Chrissy, yes. don't worry. Yes. Yeah. You the Bothell is a gem, man. What was uh, it like to navigate? organizing as a young person with the adults in seattle people were really kind to us people were really really kind to us um a lot of people thought we were cute we were we were cute but (laughs) um i would say for organizers who were older than us i mean like that's when i met nikita you know and they were definitely like big sisters to us like they would look out for us at protests would often just like yank us by the collar when we were like getting a little too a little too frisky on the front lines. Um, 
but I I never felt like it was like paternalistic it was you know after I would say the height of Seattle Black Lives Matter was 2015 into 2016 and then once we started kind of rolling more into internal work then there was more of the you know like the sit downs with the elders and some of the cultural differences we had as Mm -hmm. organizers right like their style of organizing was very different from what we were doing at the time and they definitely had opinions about it uh so yeah i i think that was but i feel like that's the classic narrative around intergenerational organizing Mm -hmm. in general how long did it take for you to stand up on the city hall table and yell at bruce harrell I never yelled at Bruce Harrell. Yeah, you did. I'm trying to find the picture right now. But I, I didn't yell at Bruce Harrell. <laughs> also, there's no tables to stand on. I think you have the most pics I know holding a megaphone. You're a megaphone, Aretha. Oh, yeah. That noise is... My job within Walk FSC was I wanted to make sure like black women were leading, that they had the mics. but And my job was to keep the block together so like, I gotta make sure the back of the protest wasn't too slow and the front of the protest wasn't too fast so there are so many stories of people who like didn't know me at the time they were like there was just this Indian girl <laughs> sprinting <laughs> up and down city blocks oh, I remember seeing you cool. yeah like I you remember just- seeing like I keep seeing this person running when I used to go to those protests yeah. in like 2015 it was just like my hair and like my auntie, who's also an OG, she was like, you need to have, like, a brand of, like, how you dress. And so she was like, I need, she was like, you have to wear all black and a colorful scarf. And so that's why you see me in all those pictures. I'm wearing, like, all black and, like, a red scarf or, like, an orange scarf. Because yeah. my auntie would always be like, that's what you have to wear. So going, like, how was that transition going from protesting and yelling in City Hall to now working in City Hall? For a radical council member. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure, I don't know. how. I mean, how did you feel like even like the first day of work when you're like, this is like where I work now? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's hard. It's still really hard. And I've been there for two years now. I mean, I talk about this very openly. Like whenever people are like, come talk to the youths about being in council. I'm always like, uh, this shit is an identity crisis constantly um because i do every time i walk up to Teresa to give her something on the dais i'm like i was literally standing there like what was it 2016 yeah block the bunker was 2016 um like scattering flower petals as like and creating an altar in in chambers uh so i think about it a lot and i talk to Teresa about it a lot because she also comes from organizing um and we both sometimes kind of feel that like weird squishiness um and it's hard to i think initially when i first started working at at council coming back to because i didn't stop organizing right like i was like i need to keep my soul i don't want to lose who i am like i definitely like i'm gonna be honest like i overcompensated a lot like i tried to prove that i was still radical and i tried to prove that i was still with the shit and still down and like still the same old aretha and what when you started working in City Hall. Mm-hmm. Like, I would work a full day, and then I would try and just, like, stack meetings. And, like, I wasn't sleeping because I, like, really wanted to prove that I wasn't going to sell out. And that just led to a lot of burnout. And it led, it forced me to have very honest and brutal conversations with people that I had been in the streets with for years. To be like, I'm scared that you're going to stop being my friend. Or I'm scared that you're going to see me differently now that I'm here. But I had role models like Sarah Tacola, who worked in Councilmember O'Brien's office, was, you know, like a fucking radical ass organizer. Like Sarah was always at the front lines, like doing shit. And so it gave me hope that like it had been done before. Like someone had remained an organizer and was in council and like was still accountable and like people didn't you know like she didn't lose all her friends um but it's still hard because you know i definitely feel the weight of where i sit and who i work for and i know that everything that 
my boss does has a very it it literally affects the material conditions of people and it's really scary because everything we do is like directly impacts somebody like whether it's their light bill or their housing or like something like that so you started feeling a little more that like you're not necessarily selling out you're just achieving the end goals through a different means can you like point to specific ways you bring your experience as an organizer into your work as an la i think one of the most tangible ways that i've been able to use that is a lot of people in city hall you know their policy wonks their whole life is in the details it's in the density it's like in the dense details sorry and you know, when we're drafting s- talking points or we're figuring out, like, how are we going to communicate this to the public, most people will pivot to talking about it in, like, granular detail. And, like, this is the specific zoning, blah, blah, blah. And usually what I'm saying in those rooms, also as the youngest person in those rooms, is this is not going to land with community. Mm-hmm. This is not going to be accessible. Like, people people that I, gr- and I always say, like, people that I grew up with don't know what the fuck this means. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being able to always push us to, to talk in normal people terms and force us to be normal people and not just policy wonks all the time, mm-hmm. um, I think that it causes people to slow down a little bit and mm-hmm. not just think of everything as a campaign, but to think of it, you know, in the way that policy, what it's supposed to do, which is to benefit people, um, which is why, you know, Councilmember Mosquera has the brand that she does is because we really try and do that. Mm. So and you come in with lived experience. Yeah. Growing up in the CD. Yes. And, and you know, when I first started working for Teresa, she jokes about this now, but, like, I, I think I was a NIMBY. Like, that is my confession is I really think I was a NIMBY when I first started working with her because, you know, I grew up in the central district when it was a black and brown neighborhood right like we talk about it as if it was this far off thing but that was 2012 when my dad died Mm -hmm. and so i we know everyone's talked about like the point when they feel radicalized and usually what i say is tamir rice but thinking more deeply i think it was when i started seeing people that i had grown up with having to move out because management shifted or like my dad you know my dad was a single father he would come home and he'd have these checks and he was like well fuck they raised our rent again and you know like he was a property manager of some weird university village thing and i think those things started to make me feel like that's when i first remember questioning like why is it that like our block can get shot up and no one cares or like you know, there's one washing machine for over 30 families. And starting to feel those things and then literally see my neighborhood be just completely, you know, pushed out. Like, everyone I grew up with is gone. And the CD doesn't look the same. And so when I first started working for Councilmember Mosqueda, I really, I was, I didn't like row housing i didn't like the idea of density because i was like look what it's done to my community like people people's aunties houses that i knew have gotten torn down and now there's these row houses and we call them cracker boxes and growing up we would always we would be like so ugly yeah they are ugly i'd be like fuck those lego boxes and (laughs) now meeting her in the middle and like understanding that those are actually now tools to make things affordable. It it helps me fi- it helps me like you know when you were talking Chrissy about how Evergreen gave you the the language to talk about the things that you would live through. I feel like now living in City Hall, not living in City Hall. No, you are overworked. No, yeah. I mean especially during the fucking budget process. Right. Yeah. We don't leave that place. It must feel like that. Um, I I get it more. Like I understand. It's hard because, like, when you work there, you you know everything. So even when I show up to community meetings and, like, people say something that's, like, factually incorrect, I'm like, well, I mean, not to be the voice of the government here, but actually it's, like, these five things. And then I, like, question myself because I'm like, 
am I speaking for the man? What am I doing? Mm. Um, what are, people don't know is that Aretha actually, not only is she a badass activist, organizer, legislative aide, future mayor. President. Future president. president. Sorry, sorry. I do not want any of those jobs, y'all. Aretha not that I couldn't do it. actually wants to be a Hollywood star. Hell yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Aretha is all about, you know, this is just her side hustle. Her real hustle is like, she's activist classes influencer. Yeah. <laughs> to be influencer. Next week on Activist Class, a Black Friday special with... The one, the only Red Witch of the Socialist Movement, aka Auntie Shama, aka Malasandra, aka Leeches on Your. <laughs> Might as well double Everyone? down. <laughs>